Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you. I was actually able to be here this summer with you for your summer series. And so I guess that didn't go too poorly because I'm back. So I am thankful to be here with you on this Sunday morning. I bring you greetings from York University in York, Nebraska. And there I have the privilege of leading our Bible department. And after 13 years of full-time ministry, I transitioned this summer. You might hear in my accent, I do not have a Midwestern accent. I have a Southern accent. We moved up from Tennessee uh, for me to have what I consider to be the best job in the world. I get to work with college students every day in this transformative and important point in their lives and help them to come to know Jesus and help them to come to know more about the Scriptures And it is a blessing to get to do that every single day at York. I want to encourage you all um, to come and visit us at York. And you might be thinking, um, why would I come and visit York? I don't have a kid in college or something like that. One of the hidden treasures of York is the John Clayton Museum of Biblical Artifacts. I did not know about this until I got there myself Um, A couple of years ago, if you're familiar with John Clayton, he sends out a mailer called Does God Exist? And he, uh, it's like an apologetics type uh, mailer and he mails it out all over the country. There was a man in California who a few decades ago was converted through that mailer. And this man happened to be a millionaire and he amassed a collection of biblical artifacts totaling over $300,000 and through a weird chance coincidence, he knew the wrestling coach at York University at the time and donated this entire collection to York University. Just to tell you how incredible this collection is, um, a couple of weeks ago there was a mirror in one of the boxes that was kind of chipping off and so we had to bring in an archaeologist from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln to make sure that we were preserving this piece correctly. And while this archaeologist was there, he said, this is the best collection of biblically related artifacts west of the Mississippi. And it is at York University. It is awesome. You should come. I would love to give you a tour of the museum. There's stuff, Old Testament, New Testament. It's really uh, incredible. We would love to have you come and and visit us. And we thank you so much for letting us be here uh, with you today. Today, in our sermon time, I want to talk about food. Yes, right? We are in this important time, in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, where all of us eat. In fact, this morning, before I got up here, I tried to button my jacket and I couldn't. And so, uh, if you want to know how good my Thanksgiving was, uh, that, that, that should be an indicator. It was wonderful. One of the reasons that I want to talk about food, and I want to have shirts made, because Jesus liked food too. I thought I'd get an amen there or something, but (laughs) Jesus liked food too. In my freshman class this semester, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, there are 19 scenes, 19 scenes where Jesus is either eating with someone Or Jesus is talking about eating. Jesus ate a lot in the Gospel of Luke. 
And of those 19 scenes, 13 of them are not found anywhere else. They're not in Matthew, they're not in Mark, they're not in John. They are unique to the Gospel of Luke. And they picture Jesus all the time talking about food and then eating food. Now, why is this? Why is food so important? I actually think one way we could tell the story of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is through food. And you're like, what what do you mean by that? In the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2, in the creation story of Adam and Eve, those two chapters talk about a major portion of the creation of the world. That incredible event where God spoke and the world came into being. And you're probably like me. You're like, I wish I knew more about this. I wish I knew more about how God created the world. I wish I I, I could have more than just two chapters worth of material. There's a whole lot about how that happened and what happened that we don't have all the details for. But let me tell you what we do know a lot about from those chapters, we know what Adam and Eve could and couldn't eat, right? There's a lot about the creation we don't know, but if you read those chapters, do you know what it focuses on? What food they could eat and what food they couldn't eat. From the very beginning, the food that you eat indicates your loyalty to God. And then if we fast forward to the last book of the book of Revelation... If we look at that very last section, what is that thing that you and I are here today because we're longing to be at? Revelation, the last book, says we're all longing to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so one way we could tell the story of the Bible is food from the very beginning of Genesis to the very end of Revelation and everything in between. Isn't it interesting that the thing that God gives his people in the Old Testament to come together every year to do is a feast. It's the feast of Passover. And then what is it that Jesus gave his disciples and his church to come together every week to remember him by? It's a meal. It's food. We could tell the entire Bible story through the lens of food. And so Luke says that when Jesus, the Messiah, came to the earth and he's having all this meal, these meals and he's talking about food all the time, it's not accidental. Because Luke and Jesus, they see the significance that how we use our tables now and how we eat now is actually an anticipation of the hope that we all have of eating around the table with the lamb in the life to come. And our tables now become important uh, anticipations of the table that is to come. With all of this in mind, what I want to do is look at one of these unique stories with you today. It's in Luke chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, we're going to be looking at the parable of the great banquet in Luke chapter 14. Now before verse 15, before we get there, Jesus is actually at a feast. Big big surprise in the gospel of Luke. He's doing this all the time. And in Luke chapter 14, Jesus has, uh, on the Sabbath, he's gone to the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, and everybody's watching Jesus carefully, because if you read the Gospel of Luke, you know that Jesus doesn't eat with the, the right people. And in this chapter, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus gives teaching about 
these festivals and these banquets. And he says, when you have a banquet, don't sit in the places of honor. You need to sit at the places at the, the, the bottom. You need to sit at the lowest places. And he says, when you have a banquet, don't invite people that will be able to help you raise your social status. You, in fact, need to invite people who are crippled and poor and blind and lame. Those are the people you need to be inviting to your feast. So as Jesus says says this, in verse 15, someone shouts out. Someone at the party shouts out. They shout out and they say, blessed is anyone who gets to eat bread in the kingdom of God. They're saying, won't it be awesome when we get to sit at that feast with the Messiah, when we get to sit at that feast with the lamb and we get to share at that table together, won't that be awesome? And so Jesus then goes on to give this parable about a host who gave a banquet. Now, it's going to become clear in this story that the person who's giving this banquet, the the host who's throwing this banquet, is very wealthy. The text says that this isn't just any kind of banquet. It is a great banquet. And it doesn't just say that this person invited a few people. It says the, the host of the banquet invited many people. And what we're going to see in just a moment in this story is that the guests who were able to come, the guests who were invited, they were wealthy guests as well. So we have a wealthy host who is inviting other wealthy guests in his same social status bracket. He's inviting other people who are in the same financial class as him. He's inviting people in the ancient world who can help raise his status. Because here's something you need to know in the ancient world is that the way that you raise your own status is by being around other people of high status. And so throwing a huge party like this uh, is a way for you to take a, a step up, is a way for you to climb the ladder This host is, we're going to see in a few moments, has several slaves, has several servants. This is a wealthy person. And what we're going to see in just a moment, this host has a house that can accommodate a huge number of people. Everything in this story says that the main figure in the parable is a very wealthy host who is throwing a party for other very wealthy people. But then when it comes time for the party, when it comes time for the party, this master who has spent all of this time and effort and money to put on this great, huge banquet, sends his servant out to tell the people who had RSVP'd to the banquet, it's time, everything's ready, let's let's go, let's have the party. But when the servant shows up at the first house, The invitee says, well, I've bought a field and I need to go look at it. Now, let me just imagine this with you for a second. I think the closest thing we could imagine today is maybe a wedding. And Chris here with York, he's planning a wedding for this summer. Imagine you go through all the preparations you go through all the preparations and then you're, you're, you're needing everybody to turn in those RSV, 
RSVP cards? Are you going to have chicken? Are you going to have steak? All this stuff. Imagine you've gone through all that and people have RSVP'd and then it comes time for the wedding and they say, "Mm, bought a field, got to go look at it. That's an insult. This is an affront to this wealthy owner. So the servant goes to the second invited person and this person says, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I must go examine them. Now, in the ancient world, five yoke of oxen is the equivalent of today something like 10 tractors. I mean, this is a huge amount of money that indicates these are are wealthy guests as well. And then the third one says, I've just married a wife and so I can't come. All of the guests have turned down the invitation. Now, when we read these, you and I might be tempted to think, well, these are not very good excuses. Where do these excuses come from? But there's actually a really interesting chapter in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 20. And in Deuteronomy chapter 20, before Israel is getting ready to go into the land, there are some exemptions given in Deuteronomy 20 to certain men, and if you were, if you met one of these exemptions, you didn't have to go fight in battle. Some of those exemptions were if you built a house and needed to take care of it, or if you planted a vineyard and you needed to look after it, or if you had just recently married a wife. Do some of these things sound familiar? Here's what I think Luke chapter 14 is doing. I think these hosts, who would be Jewish folks, when they send in their excuses to the master, I think these guests are saying, I've got a good Bible reason why I don't have to come. The Bible says I don't have to come because surely if Deuteronomy 20 says that an Israelite could get out of going to war for these things, then surely I could get out of your party. And so in this text, I think the guests are actually drawing on something that's in the Bible itself. And I think there's a lesson in this for us today. Sometimes good excuses can make us miss what God is doing and what God is calling us to do. What do I mean by that? I have a seven-year-old son who's just recently lost all his teeth. They just all came out right at the same time. I love my son And he loves to play sports. He loves to play any sport. He loves to play soccer, basketball. The other day uh, at York University, we went and watched a wrestling match, which we had never seen a wrestling match. And now he's begging to wrestle. He loves it all. Any sport, any time. A couple of months ago, before we moved to Nebraska, we lived in Tennessee, we signed him up to play flag football. And I love watching my son play sports. It's good that he plays sports. It's good that he grows in these things. But we were... Uh, we had already signed up, we'd already gone to several of the practices, and they came to us and they said, we don't have enough referees to be able to have Saturday games, and so we're going to have to move the games to Wednesday nights. Well, we have church on Wednesday nights, and that's a priority for our family. Is it good that my son plays sports? Absolutely. Does that take priority over what God's calling us to do? No, not, not in our house. Sometimes I think good excuses can make us actually miss what God's calling us to do. And so what this banquet host then says is he tells his servant, 
Run out into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Now, those first, that first round of guests that were of the same social status, all that he had to do was say, go out and tell them that the party's ready. Just go verbally tell them that it's time to come. But now that they've all spurned the invitation, there's a second round of invitations that are given. But I want you to notice the verb here. Look at what the master says is going to have to happen. The master says, you're going to have to actually go and you're going to have to actually bring these people in. Because who are they? They're poor and they're crippled and they're blind and they're lame. Now, let me ask you, do you think in the ancient world, if a very wealthy person were throwing a very huge party, that it would have been normal for a group like this, the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, to go to that party? Absolutely not. In fact, I think if you were a poor person or a blind person or a crippled person or a lame person and someone else came up to you and said, hey, you're being invited to go to this mega rich house at this huge party, I think that person would have said, absolutely no way. This is going to be shameful for me. I don't have the right clothes. I don't know. I don't talk like rich people. I don't know what to do when I get there. Anybody had an experience like me where you sit down and there's 14 forks at your dinner table and you don't know, is this the salad fork or the dinner fork or the dessert fork or the, you know what I'm talking about? I think these, these people would say, absolutely, I am not going there because you're just trying to take me there to embarrass me. And so what the, the master actually says you have to do is you're going to have to bring these people. You're going to have to convince them. And you're going to have to put in some effort to bring them. But now that this group gets there, remember, we got a wealthy host with a huge house, there's still room. There's still lots of room. So a third round of invitations is sent out. Now look at this one. If you thought that second round of invitations was rough, look at this one. Now, go out into the highways and the hedges. We're not just talking about the streets and the lanes. We're not just talking about the alleyways of the city. We're talking about the edge of town. We're we're talking about the, the highways and the hedges. If you thought the second group might have been a little rough, look at this group. But just like that second group, You've got to bring them in. Now notice how the verb even takes another step up. With this third group, you're not even just going to be able to bring them in. You're going to have to actually compel them to come in. Because of all people, they're going to say, I'm not worthy to be at that table. I'm not worthy to be invited to that party. I'm not worthy to go to that banquet. And at the very end of this story, at the very end of this parable, this is a statement that shows us how far the master has come. At the very beginning of this parable, the master threw a party for other social equals, for other people of his same status. But now by the end of it, look at what the master has learned. 
For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall ever taste my banquet. Basically, the master is saying, from now on, I'm going to keep throwing parties for people who will appreciate it. I'm going to keep throwing parties for the blind and the poor and the crippled and the lame. I'm going to be throwing parties for the people in the highways and the hedges. This is the journey that the master has taken. What's the significance of this story? I think Luke tells this story because Luke expects all of us to take this master's journey. Luke wants all of us to learn the same thing that this master had to learn. And that is that God's table, that the table, that this church, that the kingdom of God is not a country club. It's not somewhere that you go in order to raise your social status. What we're doing here is we're anticipating the table that is to come when Jesus Christ returns. And let me tell you who's going to be at that table. People of every race. People of every socioeconomic status. People of every nation. And if that's what that table is going to be in the future, then we need to be anticipating that right now at our own tables, at our own parties. Does that make sense? Our tables now need to look like the tables that are going to come. And so we need to be using our tables now as a foretaste of the table that is to come. And we need ourselves to take the master's journey We need to learn that our parties shouldn't just be inviting people who can raise our own social status, but we use our tables to serve people who can't help us or repay us back, but to serve the crippled and the blind and the lame. One of the reasons that I love teaching college kids, so when I was in ministry for 12 years, I preached at a church. And you know what you can't ever give church people? Homework. I'd try to give them homework, but they would never do it. Well, at, in college, there's a grade attached to this homework. And so my freshman class, we've been reading the Gospel of Luke. And I had them do a journal assignment this past week. Because we've talked about in class the table practices of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. I said, I want you to write down on the left-hand column the table practices of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. That Jesus seems to always be eating with sinners. Jesus seems to always be eating with the poor and the blind and the lame and the cripple. He seems to have a focus to eat with those people. And then on the right-hand column, I want you to focus on your eating practices this week. And I want you to compare those two. Every week at at York, one of the coolest things that happens in the cafeteria is there's a group of special education students that come over. And they eat in the cafeteria every week, and they're the ones that clean the cafeteria. At, At the end, they wipe all the tables down. It's so neat to see them in our cafeteria. I love it. And so I taught, I was teaching this in my freshman class, and I'm in a class of 40 I'm in a class of 40. I said, how many of you see those special education students in our cafeteria? And everybody said, yeah, we see them. And I said, can anybody tell me any of their names? And we couldn't come up with a single name. 
I'm just crazy enough to believe that when Jesus talks about these things, we ought to try to do it. I'm just crazy enough to believe that when Jesus is teaching parables like this, people that are interested in following the teachings of Jesus, we need to actually live this out. And in this parable, what we're supposed to do is take this master's journey in our own lives. But here's the thing we need to to know about this. If, If you do actually try to live this out, it's going to be difficult. Remember? You want to try to invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame, you're actually going to have to bring them in. It's going to be some effort. But if you really want to reach that third group, you're actually going to have to go out and compel them to come in. It's going to be difficult. My wife is not here, so I'm going to talk about her. Um, Whenever we have people come over to the house, to our table, our house has to be spotless. She wants our house to be absolutely spotless. Some of you know this. I see some smiles out there right now. That takes effort. It's not easy. You have to go to the grocery store and shop. You have to clean your house. It takes effort to do this. It's not easy to do this. But I think this is what Jesus calls us to do. To use our tables now to invite people in. And our tables now become a foretaste of the table that we will all be eating around one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm going to say something provocative. Can I say something provocative? We're going to leave after this, so you might not ever see me again. You can do more good for the kingdom of God at your kitchen table than you will likely ever be able to do in this church building. You can do more good around your kitchen table at your house than you could likely ever do at this building because something transformative happens when we eat together. Something powerful happens when we invite people to our table. Let me just share with you a few stories. This lady right here in the middle, her name is, everyone at church called her Volley. Well, as I got to know her, I realized one day that's not her name. Her name is Valtrod, and no one could pronounce her name, so they all called her Volley. Volley was born in 1936 in Germany, so imagine the life that she lived. She could tell you stories about being raised in Germany and Nazi soldiers coming in and ransacking her house, and she remembers the bombings. She saw a a fellow school child's parent be shot at their schoolhouse. I mean, she just has unbelievable stories. She ended up marrying an American Marine, and that's how she ended up in the Memphis area, was being married to a Marine. Her husband had died a couple of... um, Her husband had died a couple of years before I first met her. But her neighbor was Martha, right here. Um, That's Martha, That was her neighbor. And Martha would tell you this. Martha would say she's really embarrassed by this. But 
we had an awesome church and there was a group of older folks that Martha was a part of that had gone to church for like 40 years together. They had raised their kids together. They were together eating together multiple times a week like these people love each other and they are living their life together. And Martha would always brag about this. Well, Martha was Valtrod's next door neighbor. Valtrod's just lost her husband and Martha kept talking to Valtrod about how incredible our church is and how incredible our group is. And Martha would say, I'm so embarrassed. It just never crossed my mind to invite her to church with me one day. And so one day as Martha was bragging about our church, Valtrod said, can I go to church with you sometime? I love that I heard a minute ago, you have a guest meal. That's awesome. We had a rule at our church that if you were a guest... You were invited into someone's home to eat within your second visit at our church. So important to do. And so Valtrod came to church and we met her. And the next Sunday we lined up for her to come and be with the small group that I was a part of that hosts guests. And so she came and my kids were there and they were running around and being rambunctious and doing all these things. There was 15 or so of us packed around this huge table and We were talking with Valtrod and just getting to know her. And at the end of the meal, I noticed that she was sitting at the end of the table and she was weeping. And I I went over to her and I said, are you okay? And she said, she said, why are you doing this? You don't know me. Why are you treating me like family? She said, I haven't experienced a table like this since I was a little girl in Germany. She said, I want to be a part of this. What do I have to do? And so we took Valtrod and we baptized her. She was in her 90s. What you do around the table can do more good for the kingdom of God than most things you could do at this church building. When we first moved to York... We met the Millers. I was on my second day there, and um, I was on my second day there, and I was actually walking around campus, and I ran into the softball coach, Ronnie Miller, and she said, "Give me your number." So I did, and she said, "Come over for dinner tonight." And so that was on July the sixth, and I think since July sixth, we have not been at their house for dinner maybe ten times. We literally are at their house every day for dinner. And all the time, we're having students over at their house. Just Ronnie and Kenny say, our house is for the Lord. And our house is always open to students. So they're constantly having students. The Millers are from California. We're from the South. And so we were not able to go home for Thanksgiving. And so what did the Millers open up their house to do? Have students over who couldn't go home for Thanksgiving over at their house. There's a student I want to tell you about. Her name is Bailey. She came from California. She's actually a softball player. And she's standing in this picture with Sarah Van Gompel. The East Hill Church of Christ there on the corner of campus has a ministry where they will adopt students. And the Van Gompels adopted Bailey. Bailey is not from a spiritual background. She did not grow up attending church. She didn't know a whole lot about her faith, about faith at all. But the Van Gompels adopted her and they started having her into their home every week for meals. And guess what? Ken Van Gompel 
Sarah's husband ended up baptizing Bailey. I could go on and on and on and on. But I'm just crazy enough to think that when Jesus teaches about the importance of the table, that if we're following Jesus, we actually need to do that. And my challenge to you all today is this. If you want to make a difference for the kingdom here in Wichita, if you want to know, if you want at least one indicator of the health of this congregation, what's happening in your living room? What's happening around your table? Because Jesus reminds us that you can do more good around your table in your house than almost anywhere else. I hope this message has been encouraging to you. And if there's anyone in here who wants to be at that wedding feast that's coming, who wants to sit at the table with the Lamb but hasn't yet named Jesus Christ as their Lord and put on Christ in baptism, we're going to offer an invitation. And I believe I understand that the elders go to the back of the room if you need to meet with them. If you need to do anything this morning to make your life right with God, please do while we stand and while we sing.